Good evening. This is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. And here are the headlines for this evening. A federal judge today ruled that Wisconsin voters with disabilities can receive assistance while casting their ballots, reports the Capital Times. The ruling overturns a state Supreme Court decision in July that found disabled voters could not have help in returning their ballots. Four voters with disabilities filed a suit to overturn the Supreme Court decision. While the court didn't directly rule on the issue of allowing a third party to return the ballot of a disabled voter, the judge ruled that the Federal Voting Rights Act guaranteed disabled voters the right to get assistance when returning their ballot. And staying on matters electoral for another moment, the Wisconsin Election Commission voted unanimously today to ask the legislature to establish a new Office of Inspector General to review complaints of election processes and respond to requests for public records. Commission Administrator Megan Wolf says the position would help bolster the public's confidence in how elections are run in the state, according to the Associated Press. Despite the fact that the request was submitted by both Democratic and Republican members of the commission, the response from the legislature is expected to be lukewarm at best. Republican gubernatorial candidate Tim Michaels and his wife donated $250,000 to anti-LGBTQ and anti-abortion groups such as Wisconsin Right to Life and Pro-Life Wisconsin. That's according to a new reporting from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Pro-Life Wisconsin supports completely outlawing abortion and banning most common forms of contraception and birth control through their charitable foundation. The foundation, which is controlled by Michaels and his wife, also contributed $10,000 to a church in Miami that is well known for its anti-gay and anti-abortion views and $50,000 to a church in Pewaukee with similar positions. Listeners who expect to receive a $10,000 refund as part of the Federal Student Loan Forgiveness Program should hold off on their plans to spend all of it. Wisconsin is one of six states that will tax the refund as income. The Tax Foundation, a D.C.-based think tank, estimates the taxpayers receiving the full refund will pay an additional $530 as a result of the debt discharge. But the law could be changed before 2022 taxes are filed. Governor Tony Evers has said he favors doing away with the tax. Republicans have generally been quiet on the topic, although one GOP legislator said that the governor's proposal would be a tax cut that he opposes. The Racine group that had previously requested numerous absentee ballots by sending fictitious applications has now claimed that they cannot be prosecuted because the state website they used was itself illegal. The State Journal reports that the group of election deniers contends that because My Vote Wisconsin was not authorized by a statute, its misuse cannot be illegal. Uh, election administrator Megan Wolf responded by noting that the website doesn't process absentee ballots. ballots. It merely forwards the request to a clerk. It would be like saying the post office is party to fraud because it delivers a fraudulent letter. She went on to say that legislative approval isn't needed to forward emailed applications from the state to local election clerks. Community members met last night to consider the future of Rindall Park. The 91-acre green space on East Washington Avenue has tennis courts, soccer fields, splash pads, and a large community garden. 
But in the next two years, it will also have a library and community center. At a hearing last night, community members spoke in favor of keeping soccer fields while others wanted to keep the community gardens, reports Channel 3000. There will be at least one more community meeting before the master plan is developed in November. A final proposal is expected early next year. And those are the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. When we think of lead exposure, we probably think about the 170,000 lead pipes across the state of Wisconsin. But airborne lead pollution can be just as dangerous. While leaded gasoline has been banned for use in vehicles since the 1980s, it is still used in small engine airplanes, such as those flown out of the Maury Airport in Middleton. WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt has more. The chair of the Town of Middleton board is sounding the alarm on airborne lead pollution stemming from the use of lead fuel at Middleton's Maury Airport. The airport sits on the northwest side of the city of Middleton and sits within two miles of four schools and four public parks and recreational areas. Chair Cynthia Richson says that she finds the airport's proximity to places where children learn and play concerning. Uh, Every day, these recreational airplanes, this recreational airport, uh, they dust us with lead emissions. And airborne lead is toxic. It's a neurotoxin. And there is no safe level of lead exposure. The lead exposure is cumulative. It never dissipates in the environment. Uh, And it's for the health of the children and the families that live in this community. Uh, The city of Middleton, the town of Middleton, the town of Springfield, the planes fly at very low altitudes. And when they're doing that, you're breathing in lead into your lungs. After learning about the issue in 2019, Richland hired a consulting firm to run a study on lead levels surrounding the Maury Airport. That group, Trinity Consultants, is the same group used by the EPA to run their own lead level tests. Those consultants found that the airport generated about 217 pounds of lead pollution each year, or over 30 percent of all airborne lead emissions in Dane County. Rich Mori is the owner of Mori Airport. He says the lead levels from aviation fuel are overblown. Don't get me wrong. I don't want lead in the atmosphere, even in small amounts. But uh, if you do the, instead of just the modeling, if you do an actual atmospheric and soil samples, you're not going to find elevated levels of lead around uh, airports. Uh, I'll give you an example. I've been working at this airport for over, well, coming up on, if not already, 50 years. I started out here when I was 14 years old. I uh, currently work here. I'm here six days a week. I fly aircraft. I fuel aircraft. I occasionally work on aircraft. And I, uh, out of a curiosity, I've had my blood uh, checked for lead. I do not have elevated lead levels. Richmond says that she's not convinced, pointing to a 2011 study out of the National Environmental Health Perspectives Research Journal. She says the Miranda study, named after one of the lead researchers, is a gold star study on airborne lead pollution. North Carolina has much better uh, laws as it relates to blood lead testing of children. I think it's age one and two. 
and so they had a big data set they could study, and it involved 13,000 children living within uh, 2,000 meters, which is approximately uh, 1.24 miles of 66 different general aviation airports, and they had significantly high blood lead levels. So in combination of finding that study and reading about it, uh, our town board uh, decided to do uh, this study with Trinity Consulting. The issue all stems from the use of leaded aviation fuel by planes at Maury Airport. Maury, the airport owner, says the fuel currently available for small planes needs some lead, otherwise it would destroy the engines. And while new types of unleaded aircraft fuel are being developed by researchers, Maury says that not only is the fuel not yet widely approved by the Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA, but it isn't easy to find. Once, once this gets, uh, the approvals get out there, and there is a market for it, and we start seeing this fuel produced on a rapid basis, I think the costs are going to go down. And I also believe that the EPA, or the powers that be, are going to rescind the exception on uh, leaded fuel, and we're going to, no matter what it costs, we're going to be running on the unleaded. And that's perfectly fine with me, but the reality is, even though there are some engines that have the supplemental type certificate, I, I can't get that fuel through my supplier yet. It's just not available. But how dangerous is airborne lead exposure at the Maury Airport? Airborne lead exposure in airplanes themselves comes when lead in the fuel is burned and exits the plane's exhaust. The lead then turns into dust, and that lead dust then falls to the ground, exposing those underneath it to lead. Henry Anderson is an adjunct professor of population health at UW-Madison. He says that telling exactly how much lead falls where can be hard to tell without more extensive testing. Well, I mean, they will be putting lead wherever they are into the atmosphere, and then it's a matter of how much dilution occurs from the exhaust of coming out of the airplane to when it would reach the ground. Taking a handful of flour and throwing it out your window <laughs> in a second-story window, and then where does it go? How much of it will fall right below the window or whatever? So lead is not a good thing to be spreading around, but it probably isn't that much in the school. Even low levels of exposure to lead have been shown to carry a bevy of serious health effects, especially in children. According to the Center of Disease Control and Prevention, lead exposure can lead to damage to the brain and nervous system, slowed growth and development, learning problems, and hearing and speech problems. According to a 2021 study by the EPA, leaded aviation fuel is the largest remaining aggregate source of air lead emissions in the United States. And last month, the Environmental Subcommittee of the U.S. House Oversight Committee held a hearing on the use of leaded plane fuel and its effects on childhood development. At that hearing, advocates presented a study showing that the closer a child lived to an airport, the higher their blood lead level, and even more so if they lived downwind of the airport. Earlier this year, the FAA launched what they called the Eagle Initiative, a plan to eliminate all aviation gasoline-lead emissions. They say that aviation remains the only source of lead emissions in all of transportation and hope to move to unleaded fuel by 2030. 
Maury says that he welcomes that change, but until unleaded fuel is approved safe and easily available. We are simply have our hands tied on it. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. Last week's student loan forgiveness announcement by the Biden administration was welcome news for millions of eligible borrowers. Wisconsin officials say it will be helpful to those struggling to pay down large balances, but they warn there are important things to remember, including the potential impact on a person's state tax income tax return. Here's Mike Moen from the Wisconsin News Connection. In the coming weeks, applications could become available for student loan forgiveness under the new Biden administration plan. In states like Wisconsin, borrowers might have to make note of some tax implications. The Biden plan, which includes income requirements, provides loan forgiveness of up to $10,000 for federal direct loans and up to $20,000 for Pell Grant recipients. Cheryl Rapp with Wisconsin's 529 College Savings Program says it will be helpful given the student debt burden in the U.S. But she says the relief amounts could be taxed in 13 states around the country, and Wisconsin is among them. Congress expanded the federal student loan forgiveness tax exemption when it passed the American Rescue Plan last year. But that still means the state has opportunity, depending on their laws, to actually tax the money that was forgiven. It's unclear yet if Wisconsin will join 37 other states in aligning its tax code with the federal government to allow for the exemption. Democratic Governor Tony Evers has hinted he would like to see it happen. Leaders in the Republican-controlled legislature haven't offered a formal consensus, but some party members have suggested they're opposed to the idea. Rep says not making any law changes could result in a borrower being taxed between $300 and $1,000 at the state level. Meanwhile, she says it's important to be on the lookout for scams during the application process. There's scammers that might be out there of, hey, I can help you with a fee, forgive your loans or consolidate your loans and all that stuff. And Rapp says it's also important for future borrowers to still be mindful of predatory lenders. Make sure you know when you take out a private loan what you're getting into. Avoid those that are really high interest rates or have big additional costs. And for both federal and private loans, she says never borrow the full amount you qualify for if you don't need it. And Rapp says savings programs like the one she works with can help avoid these problems if investments start early. For low-income households, other family members, such as a grandparent, can make contributions to keep the account growing. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. And the time's just gone 621, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. PFAS, otherwise known as Forever Chemicals, have been known to pollute the waters surrounding the Dane County Regional Airport for years, even shutting down a well in 2019. But work to clean the PFAS contamination has been slow going, leaving some Dane County residents frustrated. 
Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt spoke with Henry Redman, reporter with the Wisconsin Examiner, about why the cleanup is taking so long and about why residents near the airport are frustrated. So, Henry, just to sort of start things off here, and I know a lot of our listeners are already sort of familiar with this issue, but for those of, for those who aren't as familiar, can you just walk us through a quick timeline of PFAS over at the Dane County Regional Airport? Yeah, I mean, for decades at the airport and the airbase, they've been using this firefighting foam um, that contains PFAS to put out fires and to practice putting out fires. Um, and both the airport and the base are sort of surrounded by branches of Starkweather Creek. And through that, PFAS have sort of leached into the groundwater and into the creek, which obviously eventually heads into Lake Monona. Uh, so that's sort of caused unhealthy levels of pollution to enter the creek, which obviously isn't drinking water, but does play an important role for recreation and fishing in the Madison area. And yeah, you do start off with talking with a fisherman uh, sort of about uh, you know, catching fish in uh, Starkweather Creek and uh, Lake Monona and things like that. Uh, how 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 does these uh, forever chemicals, PFAS, how does this have uh, an effect on the fish? And uh, why is it then dangerous to eat fish that have been, you know, ha- that have ingested this PFAS? Yeah, I mean, the PFAS last forever. They they don't break down once they've entered the environment or your body or for that matter a fish's body so the fish are in the water they're absorbing the PFAS and uh, the county has you know instituted do not eat orders for a number of different species of fish that live in the creek and Lake Monona because they contain levels of PFAS that are unsafe to consume for humans. And so now the title of your story, uh, Residents Are Frustrated by Continued Delays in PFAS Cleanup. Uh, tell, me, tell me a little bit about what you found there. What are people who are living near the airport, uh, what are they saying? Um, people living near the airport are just trying to have something more substantive done to start to deal with the problem. The the National Guard is going through this process to investigate the problem and eventually come up with a solution. And they've sort of dismissed that. They know eventually something's going to happen, but, you know, they say it's sort of army bureaucracy and understand that it's hard to speed that up. But with the city of Madison and Dane County, which are also named as responsible parties, for the pollution, they want something to happen faster. The county has instituted a number of experimental efforts to clean up the pollution that so far have not really been effective. The Department of Natural Resources said one of the methods specifically had failed outright. Um, And instead of doing more 
proven methods of filtering or treatment of the water. The county hasn't done those. They've instead joined a number of lawsuits to try to get some money back from the companies responsible for creating the firefighting foam. They've sued the DNR against more testing requirements. And the, the DNR has ordered the county to do a number of things to try to stop more pollution from happening, including upgrades to the stormwater sewer system around the airport that would slow down more pollution entering the creek. But the county agreed to do that last year in April, and that project has continued to be delayed. Uh, and so that is a major source of frustration for neighbors of the creek and the airport. And so now I, I don't know if you are able to exactly find this out, but why is it taking so long for these cleanup efforts to happen at the airport? What's 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 happening over there? So a spokesperson for the airport told me that the the project on replacing the pipes has been delayed because the the county put out a bid for proposals for companies to, you know, try to get the contract to do the pipe work and all of them came back too expensive. And so then the county couldn't find anyone to do it. They've now found the company and say that the pipe replacement and restoration should be happening sometime this fall. Um, but the reason for not doing more to treat the water or filter the water um, is less clear. Uh, the spokesperson did tell me that they're committed to remediating the PFAS at the airport. Um, and part of the problem is that the research on how to clean up PFAS has not really caught up to the problem. All right, Henry, do you have just any final thoughts of anything that you'd like to uh, share with us that we didn't quite have time to get to? Um, no, I don't think so. All right. I've been talking with Henry Redman, reporter with the Wisconsin Examiner, about the delayed cleanup response of PFAS over at the Dane County Regional Airport. Uh, you can read Henry's full story online over at WisconsinExaminer.com. Henry, it's always a pleasure having you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. A few months ago, Parks and Landmarks looked at the feasibility of biking a loop around Lake Mendota. With the construction of the North Mendota Trail, things have changed, if only a little. Feature contributor Sean Bull provides an update. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. A while back, I did an episode about loop bike paths. We compared the very popular Lake Monona bike loop with Lake Mendota and its lack of a comparable circuit. I thought at the time that that episode would be current for at least the rest of 2022, but just a couple weeks later, a major development made the local news. It turns out 
I'm not the only one with a bike loop on the brain, and a trail was already under construction on Mendota's north side. So this time, I'm going to get it right. I'm taking a ride all the way around all the Yahara lakes. I'll talk about where you can bike around each of them, detail what's being done to make them more bikeable, and rank where they are currently in terms of loopability. Without further ado, let's get riding. We'll discuss the four lakes today in order of the Yahara's flow. This puts Mendota first. Last time we talked about Madison's largest lake, I discussed the difficulties of biking around its north side. As things stood in early summer of 2022, you could get most of the way around Lake Mendota using nothing but bike lanes, paths, and slow residential streets. But there was about a five-mile stretch along the north side of the lake where a cyclist's only option was to ride along County Highway M, a fast road with a narrow shoulder. This is still the case in some areas, but now a big chunk of M can be safely bypassed. The North Mendota Trail provides a paved route through Governor Nelson State Park, linking North Shore Bay Drive to the farm neighborhood of Bishop's Bay. North Shore Bay Drive, in turn, connects to a boardwalk, which provides a safe route along County M up to a traffic light where riders can cross and head north up a path to Wanakee. On the other end, the farm and its adjacent development, the Prairie, do not yet connect to any other residential roads. Similarly, the North Mendota Trail dead ends at the edge of the neighborhood. But a million-dollar grant has already been approved to extend the trail from there, all the way to Mendota County Park at Middleton's Eastern Edge. This is huge for the bikeability of the north side suburbs. Wanakee is not contiguous with Middleton, but within another year, cyclists should be able to safely bike between the two. Unfortunately, that doesn't mean a Mendota Lake Loop is any more of a reality. Even after the North Mendota Trail is complete, that will still leave a mile or two of County M between the east end of the boardwalk and Wisconsin Highway 113. The remaining section is at least straight, so there's less chance a car will drift into the shoulder and hit a cyclist. But that cyclist will still be riding on the shoulder of a fast road and not even one marked as a bike lane. There's no plan for it in the future phases of the trail, but just an additional mile of boardwalk would get riders to Willow Road, where they could then ride on residential streets the rest of the way into Madison. Whether we ever get that extension is up to the county and the town of Westport. A Lake Mendota Loop has a lot of potential, but as it currently stands, I can only recommend it for the most confident cyclists. Two out of five stars. Working our way down the Yahara, I'd like to talk for a minute about Monona. The Lake Monona Loop has been the gold standard of Madison bike routes for decades, but there has been a small development over this summer that I'd like to address. People familiar with the Monona Loop know that it detours away from the lake on the north side of the city of Monona in order to keep cyclists off busy Monona Drive. Lake Loop purists can then rejoin the lakefront at Ulbrick Park, but some people might stay on the Capital City Trail and take a more inland isthmus route. Those people got a quality-of-life upgrade in the summer of 2022 as the section of trail along Atwood Avenue was partially redone. Specifically, where the trail crosses streets, the pavement was raised so that cars have a bit of a speed bump and bikes stay at the same level. 
As someone who usually rides a bike with no suspension, this is an awesome improvement. It makes crossing the streets so smooth, almost like the rider is on rails rather than a bicycle. I hope that this becomes the new standard, that this is how all bike trail crossings will be implemented everywhere. Monona was already a nearly perfect lake loop, but this certainly doesn't hurt. 5 out of 5 stars. Continuing on, Wabisa is, in my opinion, where the race for Madison's next big lake loop gets interesting. One would think that Mendota would be the obvious choice for the next fully loopable lake. But there's that troublesome mile up in Westport, and Wabisa is making some big strides. Perhaps the flashiest bike infrastructure project of the past decade is the first segment of the Lower Yahara Trail and the mile-long boardwalk that connects Lake Farm Park to the city of McFarland. This is the longest boardwalk made exclusively for non-motorized vehicles anywhere in the U.S., and it directly connects McFarland to the Capital City Trail. Upon entering McFarland, a cyclist can ride south from McDaniel Park through the neighborhoods along the lake shore. This leads to Babcock County Park along the south end of the city. From Babcock, you can ride past more lakefront houses through a dirt path to Lake Wabisa Bible Camp and then on to more houses still. The developed lakefront of Wabisa means that it's possible and safe to bike all the way from Lake Farm Park on the lake's north end to Jordan Drive on the lake's south shore. Unfortunately, this is where you encounter the Wabisa Loop's biggest obstacle. The Wabisa Wetland Wildlife Area is an important space for conservation, and I give it points for a fun, alliterative name, but it's impossible to bike through. It's a massive area of marsh and streams with no current footpaths through. It would take another record-breaking mile-long boardwalk just to traverse, and that's if the DNR is willing to disturb the ecosystem for the sake of cyclists. The only current way to bike from the south side of Lake Wabisa to the west side is to go miles out of the way, all on country roads that make no accommodation for bikes. If you can make it over or around the marsh, you'll find yourself once again on residential streets. These continue up most of the lake's west side, but end in a cul-de-sac about half a mile south of Lake Farm Park. The good news is there actually is a plan for a trail here. It's still just in the planning stage, but it's a relatively simple matter of paving a path over a field. As a whole loop, Wabisa is currently one out of five stars. I can't recommend anyone bike the detour around the wetland. But when the Wichita Connector Trail is complete, the rest of the loop will be really compelling. About 10 miles of trails and neighborhoods, safe for all ages and abilities. The Lower Yahara Boardwalk is a great achievement, and I can only hope that it will be replicated someday on the south side of the lake. The Lower Yahara Trail continues beyond the boardwalk, Though it now stops in McFarland, its future has major implications for recreation along the last lake in the Yahara chain. Kaganza is already a pretty good candidate for a lake loop. Though it doesn't quite touch any city, it's surrounded by lake houses and therefore relatively safe roads to bike along. The main exception to this is on the lake's north and east side, where houses give way to parkland. At present, there's no road connecting the otherwise nearby Fish Camp County Park and Lake Kaganza State Park. 
Cars traveling between the two have to take a 10-minute detour around the wetlands of Door Creek. It's over these same swamps that bikes will soon have a shortcut. The next planned phase of the Lower Yahara Trail will start at Fish Camp, constructing a boardwalk over Door Creek, and then continue on new pavement through Lake Kaganza State Park and La Follette County Park. With that, Kaganza will become a continuous safe loop for bikes, except for a tiny interruption on its west side. In the town of Dunn, U.S. Highway 51 cuts just a little too close to the lake and cuts off Colliday Point Drive. It wouldn't take much to fix this, just a few hundred feet of path between Colliday Point Drive and County Highway AB. Honestly, you should be able to bike over people's driveways and grass without issue until this is fixed, but this prevents me from giving a Kaganza loop a full recommendation. But still, once the Lower Yahara Trail is complete, Kaganza might be the second best lake to loop, an easy four out of five stars. I'll check back in with this topic again next year. In the meantime, if you'd like to suggest a topic for parks and landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wardfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's S-E-A-N dot B-U-L-L at W-O-R-T-F-M dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with W-O-R-T weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, we've had plenty of sun these past couple of days. Uh, probably a good thing since we're closing in on the end of meteorological summer in a few hours, astonishingly enough. And September will bring another hour and 25 minutes worth of daylight loss. So stock up on the light while you can. Strong sunshine and active winds, especially during the overnights, have combined to produce above-average temperatures these past few days. So August is going to go into the book slightly warmer than normal, by about half a degree overall. And the month would have been drier than normal had it not been for that downpour that we received in the overnight between Wednesday and Thursday last week. That near two inches will render the month roughly 40% wetter than normal when it ends at midnight. That moisture surplus may be offset by the several additional dry days that we've got coming up in front of us. If you have a look at the water vapor image of the continental U.S. that we have linked up at the top of the featured images on the WORT weather webpage this evening, a water vapor image I will add that has the surface pressure field superimposed on top of it, You'll see the upper trough that delivered us this recent round of drier and cooler air late Monday exiting to the east and brisk northwesterly upper winds diving southeastward from Canada behind it, helping draw in and sustain the surface high pressure cell, which you can see now centered over about Missouri. That surface ridge is helping keep both the monsoonal moisture from the Pacific, which you see spinning down over New Mexico, and the Gulf of Mexico moisture further east suppressed across the deep south while also circulating dry, warm air off the northern plains eastward into here on its north side fetch. 
that surface high is going to f- slowly follow the upper winds eastward and then northeastward into the Ohio Valley and eastern Great Lakes over the coming couple of days, opening up Wisconsin to a bit more uh, low-level moisture. Uh, at the same time, an upper impulse that's currently off-screen up in northern British Columbia slides eastward across Canada and develops a healthy surface low pressure circulation, which will cross towards James Bay by late uh, Friday or early Saturday. The southeastbound cold front behind that storm will be approaching southern Wisconsin later Friday sometime, with its passage then in the overnight period going into Saturday, at least as the model timing currently has it. The models have generally been unenthusiastic about developing significant precipitation with this front, although there is some remoistening of the air column evident on the shorter, uh, shorter range, high resolution versions of the model models, at least to the extent that those uh, go out uh, that to that time frame. Uh, so passing showers are possible in the overnight Friday into Saturday, but precipitation looks uh, to be fairly progressive, probably pushing south and east by uh, early Saturday morning sometime. I should add, though, that the incoming surface high-pressure cell will be on a trajectory that will take it mostly eastward across the northern Great Lakes, with just its southern periphery pressing southward past us, past us into about central Illinois. So cloud cover from the continued activity to our south as that front uh, slows down may linger through Saturday, perhaps into Sunday. Beyond that, though, uh, it looks like we'll continue to stay dry as another round of upper ridging starts to build back over us from the northwest, uh, producing an upper and lower configuration then similar to what will be occurring over the coming couple of days. So it looks like we're going to not see any significant precipitation probably until sometime midweek next. But back to tonight, clear skies and lighter winds as the uh, surface high over Missouri builds eastward will allow temperatures to drop to the upper 50s on northwesterly winds uh, coming down uh, near calm as we go past uh, midnight or so. Uh, Tomorrow, skies should start out clear and remain so through a good portion of the day, though returning moisture up in the second mile above ground level may begin producing some mid-level clouds in the afternoon, possibly also joined later on by some northward-moving cumulus. Uh, Temperatures will reach the low 80s on uh, south-to-southwest winds coming up to 5 to 10 miles per hour in the afternoon. Passing clouds are likely to continue at at least at turns through the overnight with uh, southwesterly winds up at 4 to 8 miles per hour. Uh, That will hold temperatures probably in the mid-60s. And Friday will be breezy and perhaps a bit warmer, though that will depend in large measure on how much cloud cover we do see that day. So uh, low 80s, possibly mid-80s with a little more sun for high temperatures on Friday. And most likely with the dew points uh, returning to the somewhat sticky mid-60s as well on southwesterly winds up at 10 to 17 miles per hour that day. Showers and thunderstorms then become uh, more likely late day or in the overnight hours, uh, probably passing in just an hour or two when they do come through. They may be scattered as well as they come through. Uh, Temperatures will hold in the mid-60s on lighter southwesterly winds veering west uh, lightly uh, early Saturday morning. And Saturday we'll see some clearing, though areas to the south and east especially are likely to see some more sustained cloud cover that day. Winds will slowly be veering north and then northeast, coming up to uh, 4 to 8 miles per hour Saturday. Temperatures will reach the mid-70s. We'll be in the upper 50s overnight, then back into the lower mid-70s Sunday, with better clearing and northeasterly winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour. 
And we'll stay dry on out through Monday and a little beyond that as well, with temperatures warming back towards 80 at that time. It's currently 79 degrees uh, down here at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 59. Winds are out of the west at 7 miles per hour. Uh, perfectly clear over the uh, station on Bedford Street currently. And the barometer is at 29.96 inches of uh, mercury and fairly steady over the past few hours. It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to 1965 as the Madison School Board confronts issues of discipline, demographics, and diversity. Stu Levitan has the lesson plan on this week's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, 1965, the public schools. The new school year opens with almost 32,000 youngsters in the public schools, ranging from 203 at Cherokee Elementary to more than 10 times that at West Senior High. But the numbers are not good at Madison's first high school. On September 8th, the 57th anniversary of Central High's first day, The school is warned it will likely soon see its last day due to declining enrollment. Chief District Analyst Clifford Hawley lays it out for the special committee of city and school officials. Quote, the central areas of the city will not furnish enough junior and senior high school pupils to maintain Central High School in its present role. That's just fine with veteran vocational school director Norman Mitby, whose main campus is conjoined with Central. He wants Central to close so he can have the building for his growing program. But not everyone agrees. In November, a group presents petitions signed by 1,300 residents pledging, quote, a concerted fight to defeat any plan to close the school. And the NAACP warns that closing Central could lead to de facto racial segregation and vows to monitor the move closely. The board promises to consider the petition and the concerns when deciding the school's fate and sets a special meeting for early 1966 to do just that. It's a rough start for Madison's newest school, Abraham Lincoln Junior High. Within weeks of its September opening, the new Southside school is rocked by reports of violence, widespread theft, and harassment, even a school-wide extortion ring forcing pupils to hand over nickels and dimes for protection. A group of about 80 parents meets on September 30th to form an advocacy group, and more than 25 parents there say that their own children have been threatened or hit or had items stolen. 
Lincoln's founding principal, Jack Stickles, acknowledges that his experience as principal of Lakewood School in Maple Bluff did not fully prepare him to handle the ethnic and economic diversity of the South Side, where close to a third of the new school's pupils are black. There are material problems as well. The school opened with construction still underway in the gym, commons, and library, making it impossible for the school to use its innovative modular system. Stickles tries to solve things with a schedule change, while the board applies for $32,000 in federal funds to have guidance counselors and a social worker. One problem Stickles can't solve, Madison has only four or five blacks among its 1,500 teachers, and school superintendent Robert Gilbert says he's having trouble hiring more because they're in such high demand. Gilbert says hiring a black teacher is as hard as recruiting teachers of foreign languages and mathematics. Lincoln isn't the only school with behavior problems. As the school year opens, West High closes its lunch period, keeping kids inside because there are so many continuing complaints from area residents and businesses about disruptive pupils out on the street. Students will have to eat lunch in 27-minute blocks from 11.20 a.m. to 1.20 p.m., Principal Douglas Ritchie also enforces a stricter dress and behavior code, banning smoking and ordering several boys to get haircuts. And in December, the Madison Bus Company threatens to cancel service to Van Heys Elementary and West High due to rowdy students. Pupils, particularly from Van Heys, have been shooting heavy paper clips and other objects at drivers' heads, and a bus nearly jumped a curb after the driver was conked on the noggin with a potato. As the school year starts, the school board votes 5-2 to two to distribute a list of fallout shelters and other civil defense information in sealed envelopes to be brought home by schoolchildren. City Civil Defense Director Richard Wilson proposed the plan because the shelters in the public schools can accommodate only 14,129 people, less than half the total enrollment, and parents need to know what other protection is available. In November, the Board of Education learns that it is indeed covered by the new city ordinance that all government meetings must be held in public buildings. Board member Arthur Diney Mansfield the UW baseball coach who chairs the board's Policies and Procedures Committee, had planned on holding the committee's next meeting at his home until City Attorney Edwin Conrad ruled he couldn't. On the committee's agenda, a proposal by Board Vice President Ruth Doyle that board agendas be publicly available prior to the meetings. Right now, they aren't. Madison's growing cultural and religious diversity causes several schools to reduce or even eliminate their traditional Christmas programs this year. Quote, requiring students to sing praises to Jesus was not quite right, Silver Springs School Principal Dorothy McClinnon determines, so she cancels the program entirely. I've felt this need for many years, she says, but could not screw up enough courage to do so until this year. The school staff and PTA support her decision. Other schools seek a balance between sacred and secular songs of the season. Once in a while, some people of the Jewish faith have a reaction to the Christmas program, Orchard Ridge Principal Ron Fox says, but most go along with it because they don't want to be different. And 1965 is a sorrowful year for the school board. Herbert J. Schmiege, 67, 1824 Yahara Place, 
a member of the Board of Education from 1950 until his narrow defeat in April, dies on May 20th after a brief illness. A former alder and president of the Eastside Businessmen's Association, Schmegi retired in 1962 as director of the State Bureau of Purchasing. And attorney Glenn W. Stevens, 73, 1102 Sherman Avenue, a member of the Board of Education since 1927, and its president since Schmegi joined in 1950, dies July 31st after a long illness. A native of Chicago Heights, Stevens remained in Madison following his graduation from UW Law School in 1916. The new elementary school on Rose Road was named in his honor in 1961. On August 24th, Mayor Otto Feske appoints attorney Richard Cates to succeed Stevens. Cates, who served with the U.S. Marines in World War II and the Korean War, is a former chief deputy district attorney and special prosecutor in a state John Doe proceeding. He's now a named partner in the state's leading labor law firm. In 1958, he unseated GOP State Representative Carol Metzner, but did not seek re-election. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, school-bell-ringing, listener-supported WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan. That does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our sole reporter was Mike Mullen from the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to feature contributors Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kateman was our on-air engineer. Nate Weggie helped produce the newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. <laughs>